Hello and welcome to episode 254 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we are anticipating, not improvising, in our review of David Fincher's new thriller, The Killer. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm good. I feel like, it, the, you know, it's been a minute since a Fincher movie. We said that about a lot of directors, I guess. I, maybe it hasn't been that long. It's only been three years. But because of the nature of Mank, for me personally, uh, it feels like I haven't been fed something I wanted in a while, which is the sort of noir sensibilities of David Fincher. And so having the chance to see this movie a couple times over the last month, first at the end of the New York Film Festival, second in the Alamo Draft House in Lower Manhattan, I can properly say that I feel like I've gotten my fill on Fincher and I'm excited to talk about it today. Yeah, no, it's it's exciting and also just kind of crazy. I mean, obviously we did it three years ago with Mank, but every movie was just coming on streaming back then but it's 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 it feels strange but also exciting to just like come home and turn on netflix and hey look there's a new david fincher movie that's just right there um and also uh, how it was for a while when he was just popping out mindhunter on netflix too right but yeah. yeah i unfortunately didn't get to see this in a theater um because just didn't play near me or it's it's opening this week actually um in my indie theater which is strange yeah but um because of the pod watching on Netflix, which is fine. I think it's solid enough for a streaming watch though. Not my preferable uh, method, but we will talk more about that. And uh, of course, longtime listeners of the pod will know that David Fincher uh, was one of the directors that we covered on our countdown series of podcasts right now. We're doing Hayao Miyazaki. Um, I hope you're checking out those episodes, but um, a couple of years ago uh, in the lead up to Mank, we did all the films of David Fincher and joining us on that countdown series and joining us today on the podcast as well is of course our good friend of the podcast jay habib jay thank you for joining us today to talk about another fincher film how are you i'm doing all right scott i'm i'm laughing at the pause you went you know our good for you know a good friend of the podcast i'm like all right <laughs> not, not good friend of the hosts but good friend of the of show course. Of course. <laughs> i'm just playing good I'm friend good. in all forms yeah I'm good. You know, you guys are really uh, starting to take up, uh, you know, continuing to take up a lot of my free time, you know, obviously (laughs) with the Miyazaki countdown that you just mentioned. And, you know, now we're doing Fincher pictures uh, as well, but not that I'm complaining. (laughs) It's been fun. No, I know. I'm I'm having a good time. Yeah. Now you know what our lives are like, have been like for like the last five, six years, however long (laughs) we've been doing this now, Scott. Um, Almost six years. We're about, we're about to hit six years, I think, or we're, yeah, we're just about there, but closing in. Um, yeah, um, but yeah, no, uh, we're we're always happy to have you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, at this point, it's not even like it. Almost, it's not even like a guest appearance because you know you've been on all the Miyazaki episodes that have been coming out. I think people, if you listen to the pod, you know, maybe you just expect to hear Jay at this this point. So we're eventually um, going to get enough in, to enough directors in the countdown series <laughs> where Jay's just going to be on every episode. Yeah, because that's we'll true. Cover yeah. every director making a movie. Obviously, oh, that's, that's, that's a terrifying thought. <laughs> Wait until Saltburn comes out and we'll do the Emerald Fennel countdown. But, Short and uh, sweet. One movie. Let's yeah. go. Exactly. And we'll also watch. What did she appear in as an actress recently? Oh, I should. There was I something, should. wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I, I, was, I thought you were going in a direction where yeah. she like did season two of Killing Eve. So you'd have to randomly watch season yeah, two of Killing yeah. Eve. Um, 
No, but, uh, we're we're not going to we're not going down the TV route yet. Lord, knows I mean, we, we would have had to do Mindhunter for Fincher. We would have. That yeah. is true. We would. We, we should. Honestly, we should have music videos too. Yeah. Sure. But, yeah. Um, music videos. Anyway, we don't have a music video to review today. We do have, however, the twelfth feature film from director David Fincher, The Killer. Starring Michael Fassbender as the unnamed titular assassin, the killer introduces us through voiceover to Fassbender's character, a meticulous and precise assassin who claims to be more or less batting a thousand when it comes to his success rate. That is, until the opening sequence to the film, when he does something he's never done before. He misses his target. After said target escapes from the killer's bullet, the killer contacts his handler, Hodges, played by Charles Parnell, and learns that, unsurprisingly, he's none too pleased with the killer's failure. Returning to his safe house in the Dominican Republic, the killer discovers it ransacked and his girlfriend in the hospital badly injured. Suspecting that Hodges may be behind this attempted hit, the killer sets out on a path of revenge, seeking to track down everyone involved with this betrayal and to show them no mercy. His quest will require all of his skills as a hitman, as well as a little improvisation, as unpredictable moments wait around every corner. And this vengeful journey will eventually cause him to reflect on what he is doing and why it matters to him in the first place. Jay, we'll start with you. Is Fincher's second straight Netflix joint a pulpy genre exercise that once again shows the great director to be as ruthlessly pr proficient as his protagonist? Or does this fairly straightforward action thriller lack the depth and detail of Fincher's masterpieces? I think it's somewhere in the middle. I am ultimately glad I saw this. And uh, like an episode we recorded recently, I watched this movie right before hopping on. Like I, I watched the movie, I went to dinner, and now I'm here. So you're getting very fresh thoughts. But I'm, I'm ultimately glad I watched it. I don't think this is upper echelon Fincher, and that's okay. I think Michael Fassbender you know, really carries in, uh, in a movie that I think, you know, could have been paced up a bit. I, you know, it, it, it's, I don't want to get into all the ways this reminded me of like other franchises um, between the narration and the, you know, ruthless killing and whatnot. But he, I feel like he does an absolutely good job. You know, the, the, the story does feel like it's a lot of the same kind of happening, even though there are like different elements with like each, you know, of his like eventual targets and whatnot. Um, I do think the supporting cast is cool. Again, I think maybe just like my only gripe with it really uh, was that I feel like it could have been paced up a little bit, like it, and just maybe made to be a little bit different. I honestly thought, um, maybe, maybe I'll leave my thought to what I thought was going to happen at the end to later to not just immediately get into spoilers, but I. Yeah, I think that's really just it. Like, good performances, think it could have been paced up a little bit, but, like, did enjoy it. You know, glad I saw this one in a theater. You know, if people are able to do so and you're interested in seeing it, like, I think that does make it better. This is one of those movies that definitely, like, really benefits from that. Um, I also just want to apologize to my beloved AMC for cheating on it with a Regal today, since no AMCs in my area were showing uh, the movie. And... God, I I think I think the chairs honestly in my theater made it like half a Star Wars. I'm only kind of kidding, but like, <laughs> well, I, I was really uncomfortable. Um, listen, you're just, fortunate. You're fortunate in in another way, which is that Regal finally got rid of their horrid uh, pre movie video that they would show. Um, you know, basically their counterpoint to the Nicole Kidman AMC video, which was 
just this awful short film of people arriving at the theater and speaking only in movie quotes to each other. Um, and it, it look it up on YouTube sometimes. It is ghastly. Um, and it, it involves a woman at one point walking into the theater, you know, to the start of a screening and just going, hey, you guys. And uh, it's one of it's it's something that lives rent free in my head um, for whatever reason. But um, anyway, check that out. You're, you're lucky, Jay. You didn't have to deal with that. It would have been a half star, another half star lower. Yeah, we will talk about the ending of the movie, Jay. So don't worry, you'll get a chance to fire off all your takes at that point. But uh, Scott, over to you. General impressions on the killer. I was really pleased with this film. I like I said, I saw it twice over the last month. And the second watch was I, I was sort of questioning whether I, I needed or wanted to see it a second time. And then it rolled around to going out into theaters near near me after the film festival. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go see this again. I want to. I'm going to go see it with a friend and really enjoyed it. I, I really felt like Fincher was back in a wheelhouse or in a register that really worked for me. And it's unfortunate that Jay just said this. Um, because I heard a lot of people saying this after the movie, and it's and it's bothered me a little bit. But people are just like, it's not top tier Fincher. I'm like, of course it's not top tier Fincher. He's made two of the best movies of the 21st it's century. Not, like, it's of not one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, I love <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. saying that. Yeah. I just, I, it's weird to me that people walk out of what I at least estimated was a pretty good movie, and I even think that those people agree. And not, and I think that you agree that it's a good movie, Jay. I'll let you correct me if I'm wrong there. And then it's weird to say then to follow that the first thing you say about it is it's not top tier Fincher as if it's like some, like as a, as a kind of a, of a neg on the movie. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't really know what that means for me personally. And I, and it is really unfortunate because I was going to say that regardless of whether Jay just said that right before me. I mean, I think it's but, a natural thing to compare, a, you know, a movie that a director puts out. I'm not saying it's unnatural. I just, like, I just think it's a bad, it's a bad reflex for us as like a movie going audience to be like, yeah, this is not I as mean, good as this director's best movie is like the right, first thing. For, that, I mean, like, what if it's in the opposite direction, though? Like, when we, like I remember when we walked out of Oppenheimer, like, I don't remember if it was that night, but I feel like soon after you were like, this is, you know, like, maybe one of his best three. I don't, like, you know, correct me if I'm misquoting there, but, like. But, that, but, but that's, but again, like, that, that sort of heightens the compliments of the movie, where it's like you walk out of the movie and you're thinking that the film is good and, you're, and your reaction is to say it's not as good as these other movies. Is, again, I just think it's, it's natural, but it's, it's, it's a bad reflex to like frame it that direction in my opinion For, I mean, i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and i will just clarify like i thought it was fine like okay so maybe you don't think the movie's good that I, okay yeah like if this isn't getting like a particularly good score like just if, if that's one way of describing like whether i think this is a good movie or not like it you know i think it has like good parts to it i think some of the acting is really good um i, I will but, say scott to your yeah. point for better or for worse i think like letterboxd and film twitter and stuff have like given to people a obsession with like lists and ranking stuff and comparing stuff to other stuff and doing what you're saying of like oh immediately we have to think about where this goes on my fincher rankings or whatever and uh we are going to talk about that probably a bit later on but uh sure. anyway i just think that that has become a tendency at least from people who pay attention to Film, I mean, that's you know, the thing. This like is like a do. problem for people who like have watched all of David Fincher's movies, right? Not yes, like, yeah. you know, just so happens to be that we've done a whole series on David Fincher. And so, again, mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's it's not natural to do that. I just think that and maybe I misread Jay's position on the movie because I thought he was a little bit more positive than it sounds like he is. But it, it's strange to me to walk out of a film of a great director and say, 
not his best um, if you think the film is good, but which I had see I have seen a lot of people saying and I'm just like very confused by it because I think this movie is really good. Kind of opposite of Jay, I think paced up a bit like I think this film needed to slow down. If anything, this film is traveling very fast in my estimation, and you're not really getting a lot um, in each specific chapter of the movie. So for me, I thought one of the actual critiques of the film that I had was you don't really get to know any of the characters in the film. And I think that the film's not super interested in you getting to know these characters. I mean, they literally never even give you the names of the assassins. Like, you don't know the name of Fassbender's character or any of the people that he kills except for Hodges, uh, Charles Parnell's character. And I guess the, the, the client... Uh, whose name's Claiborne or whatever, like a, the billionaire guy at the end. Mm-hmm. So you only get like a couple names of people in this movie. The rest are targets, essentially. So it, there's a there's like an almost like an, an anonymity to the film that leads more towards this really being a genre, pulpy genre exercise to the, I think your original question, Scott. But I, I think Fincher really flourishes in that in that wheelhouse. And I think it's something that he's, really interested in doing i think he's really interested in doing genre exercises i certainly do think that he's had better genre exercises but i really enjoyed this film i thought fassbender was good in the movie and i think that the sort of meta commentary of it all that the film's going for is something that i just found like infinitely funny about the movie and i think that i get a lot of mileage out of thinking about you know david fincher making fun of himself, which I think is essentially what this movie is doing. And I really enjoyed that on a personal level and think that it's funny for the man who's, I think it's fair to say the industry perception of him is like this, one of the most serious filmmakers and the most exacting filmmakers you'll ever work with sort of making a film about a guy who is super exacting in his work not being very good at his job and like kind of getting the job done anyway. Uh, it's just hilarious meta commentary for me. And I really enjoyed this film. Yeah. I, I, you know, it is an interesting satire. We can talk some, some more about sort of the satirical elements, but as you say, Scott, he's so precise um, and he's kind of just reflecting on, you know, does that precision get you the results that, you know, you, are, are seeking to obtain. Um, and I think this is what you must sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the killer finds in this over the course of this movie, not always. And, uh, maybe Fincher is also, uh, as you say, reflecting on some of his, you know, particular filmmaking qualities and, and particular shoots maybe that he's been on. But, um, yeah, I also really enjoyed the movie. Um, I was the one who enjoyed Mank here so i um it's probably not a a surprise that i'm deeply deeply in the bag at this point for for fincher um as i think we all are on some level but um yeah i i thought this movie was a lot of fun um it's it doesn't take itself too seriously while also taking itself very seriously which i liked um i think the opening voiceover which is like 20 minutes long is just really kind of funny um again thinking about it in the context of you know, David Fincher talking about himself in a way too. Um, but also just hearing this guy in such a, a self-serious way going about his, talking about his process and, um, you know, all this 
philosophizing that he is doing while he's just like waiting for his moment to um to 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 take the shot and then you know the 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 funny the punchline at the end of all that is after all that talking and all that you know i'm the best i'm i do this and this and this he misses his shot right and yeah. the target gets away um it's really great that he acknowledged that he messed up mank mm-hmm. i think that's really cool that he did that <laughs> i'm just kidding. yeah right he really blew <laughs> um I think I think what he's saying is that we're not relitigating like Mank. Okay, alien that's 3. not what we're he's talking here. about. We all know he's talking about Alien Three and that. So, what if there was a Mank, guys? Um, but no, I, I thought this movie was great. Um, and yeah, I really like this like director. You know, really skilled, high caliber directors like a David Fincher, like a Steven Soderbergh. You know, making these genre exercises, B movies, even if you will. This movie is pretty straightforward. Um, it does remind me of, like, again, we're talking about Soderbergh. It reminds me of, like, No Sudden Move or Kenny, some of the movies that Soderbergh has made recently for streaming, just, you know, as this one is, although it's also in, in some theaters. But, um, you know, it's it's straightforward. It doesn't necessarily have a ton on its mind. You know, we can talk about sort of some of the stuff that happens in the third act that, that you know, maybe there are some ideas at work here. But, um it's just it's it's fun to watch. It is it shows his mastery of procedure, I think, which is something that we talked about in a lot of Fincher movies, particularly stuff like Zodiac and, you know, the police work scenes in Gone Girl and Seven um, are, you know, he, he, he knows how to make that stuff that might be dry in another context really sing. And like this movie is just it's basically all procedure right again from the very beginning. He's describing his methods and, you know, he's he's going about the hit and then he, he sets out on this quest for revenge. And it's like there is no fat right in in this movie. It is. He finds one person. There's an interaction there. You can guess maybe what happens. He moves on to the next person. Another interaction. Next person. I mean, there, there's no like there's like I say, there's no fat. There's there's, you know, no like extraneous scenes to bridge the gap even between these, you know target killer no filler you might say it is yeah Yeah. exactly um and i enjoy that i mean you know fincher is nothing if not you know ruthlessly efficient and i think that's the the you know highest compliment yeah i mean i mean to a fault i you you could argue yeah right which is what he's again reflecting on i think in this movie but um i had a great time with it i would honestly watch it again because i thought it was pretty breezy honestly again the fact that it you know is just bang 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 one person to one person to one you know there again there's it's all killer no filler as we're saying i i do think yeah. it's pop on i was watching it, i was like this is yeah. pop on material yeah i think i think you it's know. like it could be a pretty easy rewatch because you you honestly don't have to think about it too hard um which it's not something you could say about a lot of fincher movies like again i think you know even something like gone girl which is you know, disguised as genre, you know, based on this this best-selling, you know, page turner. I think it even it even leaves you with a little more, and it it lingers a little more um, when it's a, when it's all said and done. Um, whereas this is it just it is what it is. Like it it is what it advertises itself to be. Right? It it is just this this action yeah, thriller. It's more kind of like panic room on a quest for revenge. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the closest thing in his filmography. And look, I think on the on the countdown, I said Panic Room was the most underrated Fincher movie. So maybe explains why I'm also a fan of this movie. Yeah. Um, 
Scott and Jay, let's move on to talk about um, the cast in this movie. Um, and, and that really starts and maybe even ends with Michael Fassbender's performance as the killer, right? Because um, we can we can visit the supporting cast briefly, but um, nobody in the supporting cast is really in this movie for more than one scene other than Michael Fassbender. And again, you can probably guess why that is maybe, but um, he's the biggest name here. Um, and uh, he he stars for the first time in work his first time working with Fincher. Um, Scott, I'll go to you first. What did you think about his very sort of cold, detached performance here as this cold, detached killer? Yeah, I I do think that this is really good casting because Fassbender has this vibe about him. I think. I mean, he's done such a diversity of roles, but I, I think he sort of has engineered this level of sort of like coldness in a lot of his performances, at least of the, the ones that come to mind for me, that plays really well into this guy who is sort of this, you know, icy killer who, you know, is fully committed to his I, I'm, I, you know, I almost said art form. I don't know if that's probably a good way to describe it or not, but his practice fully committed to his job and goes to great lengths to make sure that he, he completes his missions and things like that. So, but, and, and I think that there's a coldness that also exists in his like version of Magneto and the X-Men movies. There's a version of his coldness in the alien films that he's a part of like Prometheus and alien covenant. And uh, of course he played Steve jobs, who is you know notably a very cold operator um in that biopic so uh, overall i think it's really good casting and the sort of self-seriousness of that sort of goes with the coldness and not that he's a one-note actor i think he's anything but but i think that it is very comfortably in his wheelhouse to deliver those kinds of performances at this point and the almost the unemotion of it all really plays into the strengths uh, of his personality or his persona so well cast i think it's a solid performance from him and yeah the whole self-seriousness of the voice memos that he's narrating over what's happening through frankly almost all of the movie is entertaining and that's coming from someone who is skeptical of the over overuse of voiceover narration and things like that but obviously this film is doing it with more of a purpose than the voiceover narration than typically bothers me and the fact that that it is sort of played into the film in such a in such a major way and it's being used as part of this like the self satire it does work for me overall so it's a, it's a really strong performance for him and i think jay described it as him carrying the movie i would agree with that i mean partly because there's like literally no one else that could be carrying the movie but you still have to do the job and that job he did do uh debatable whether he successfully did his other work in the, in in the movie but there you go Jay, your thoughts on Michael Fassbender? I mean, couldn't agree more with what Scott said. I probably would have had less to draw from. Like, I would have, you know, drawn from his performance as Magneto, and, you know, I, that is probably what was coming to mind as I was watching him again. He does just have this, like, cold, you know, immovable force about him that, like Scott said, like, he's, maybe he's just, like, comfortable with at this point, like, and he just does a really good job of. I really did enjoy him. I, I'm also like with Scott in the camp of like narrations overused. Um, not in like generally, not in this case. Like in this case, I think it, you know, serves a clear, interesting and like good purpose. So, you know, 
again, like better, better that than, I don't know, I guess like removing it. Cause then this movie gets very, very, very quiet. I think there's like, tw- I don't think we hear him speak out loud of the first like 20 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, like I think it's his all first line in like in the moment is him saying shit after he misses the shot. Yeah. Oh, no, that's not true. He's talking, he's talking to Hodges on the phone before that, but that's right, true. Right. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. I mostly, but fair enough. But I mean, the, the, the vast majority of his lines in the movie are voiceover in the, yes. in the voiceover because yeah. most of the time when he's on these jobs, he's not actually talking with anyone. Really. Sure. Yeah. It's like very minimal. If any, and you get the sense too, it's like this is David Fincher's like internal monologue at all times, uh, yeah. which, you know, again, it's just a funny thought. Even though he isn't, do- even though Fassbender isn't doing anything like explicitly comedic necessarily here, I feel like there's just something about his persona. He has like this like bemusement about him, if you will, where, um, it's just, it's, it's funny. Even when he's, you know, doing stuff like, Yoga. you know, just carrying out these, cold you know calculated murders um i think there's something funny about his persona um and yeah i mean some of these these murders are are pretty rough to watch i mean we can we can talk about the the kill sequences i guess but um yeah i mean obviously obviously you know fincher has has filmed his fair share of kill sequences um over the course of his career and zodiac i think maybe being some of the most memorable ones where he recreates some of the zodiac murders but um, i want to say gone girl has one but moving yes gone girl has one i mean seven seven obviously has some you want to go through the list there's plenty in girl with dragon tattoo if we want to keep we want to keep listening but um yeah we'll we can again we can circle back to the supporting cast but just while we're on this topic what do you guys think about just the the staging of the kill sequences here because there again there's there's different stuff going on in all of them you have like the long drawn out fight that he has with the male um burglar who who broke into his his house um and then you also just have like you know straight up just just icing somebody in the car like he does with the the taxi driver um what did you guys think about you know these sequences and um how fincher shoots them and were they memorable jay i mean you left out tilda swinton and you know sure movie waits a long time before letting her cook but i i mean like i think that like they're they're overall like i mean technically very sound right like i'm i'm super engaged i think they're shot in like you know ways that like i'm just feeling the tension right like and that it it comes across very clearly even just you know i I, i'm just gonna talk about the tilda swinton one for a bit because i i think that might have been my favorite piece of the movie where they're just like having that conversation over dinner and again she's just being very like well i'm gonna die and you know he's just like unflinching unwavering like i'm just you know you know just staring daggers at you this whole time because i don't trust like what's going on and you know rightfully so uh, and yeah at the end of that scene. Right too. yeah and yeah i mean i I, th- I think you know we we just joked about this but i think that you know, these are these are some solid kill sequences you know add it to the list of other very memorable kill sequences that he has done yeah i uh i think we should also mention when he kills um the secretary for uh hodges and uh he very like gently and tenderly you know uh, 
in order to to fulfill her last wishes like lets her die in such a way such so that you know makes her it like an accident and profit yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, by snapping her neck and like kicking her down the stairs basically which uh is just again kind of kind of funny how that plays out but scott yeah the the memorable ones for me and i and i feel like this is the kind of this is the fun with this kind of movie where i think different ones are going to stick out to different people the one for me is definitely hodges just because the, to me that's like the peak of yeah. the movie of and when i just sort of really appreciated that this guy just not is not very good like truly not very good at his job because uh, the, the funniest part of the movie is when he's like he's got about seven or eight minutes to live he yeah then he just dies immediately yeah. and he's like god damn it <laughs> uh it's that like, is, why that why would you funny. think like i mean there there's obviously some foundation i guess for the science or whatever that he's like but, i mean maybe not honestly but um it, why would you think that like shooting someone in the chest with a nail gun is like not gonna kill three them times. like instantly three times. Yeah. <laughs> well yeah i mean the impression that i got is that he had great confidence because he you know if you he read somewhere he knows that if you place the nails just right yeah, it will have this result. And the way I took away from it is what either well, I guess there's one impression where you could be like, he has no idea what he's talking about. The other impression is that he just messed up where the nails are. And that's sort of the way that I had interpreted it, where he's someone who's like, he thinks he's really good. He's well read. He does all these things. He knows how to do stuff. And then like, he just doesn't know how to execute it properly is basically mm -hmm. the way that I, I felt in that scene and in the first scene too, right? Like he has all the preparation. He knows what to do. He does all the things and just, he he doesn't quite get it right. And I kind of view that similarly here and very similar to another one where it, which is the brute, the one in, in Florida where mm -hmm. he's done all these things. He's like kind of doing some weird stuff with like the dog, but it's like kind of creative. Yeah. It like, works. He goes into the house and like, this should have been easy. Like this should not have been a hard one and ends up making a meal of it. Super visceral fight scene. Yeah. One of the best scenes in the movie for me just the physicality of that performance and you can really feel it as well with the way that the film is shot with eric messerschmidt from those very low angles like the camera is almost always on the like feels like it's on the floor which i think sort of adds to the visceral nature of what you're seeing because you're so like connected to it like grounded on the on the floor with them and i think that is where fassbender showed that he's not just you know, coasting through the movie on this coldness and this sort of almost like strange whimsy narration. And instead, he's like very much physically in the role as well. And, and I felt that to some extent earlier on when he's going through his his usual um, process, like with his yoga and with, you know, assembling and disassembling the gun and his like storage unit that he like, you see the process, but I feel like he's like really finally in it in that scene. And the diversity of all those different scenes really plays out well, because it's not like every single time he's going and doing one of these kills in the movie, each one of these chapters of the film, the same thing is happening. He has this super physical um, hand to hand altercation. He has this sort of long conversation with Tilda Swinton's character. He's like trying to scare this billionaire. He's, and he's just sort of trying to get information out of the taxi driver who eventually, of course, gets rid of Arises as well, as someone said earlier. So I really think the kill sequences work well. I'm not going to like I'm not going to remember all of them forever, but like one or two of them, I think are going to stay in my mind for sure. And I think that's 
probably what you should be hoping for, at least what I was hoping for when I went and saw the movie a second time is, is sort of to cement that notion that a couple of these are up there in his filmography. And I, and I think that they are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the scene you mentioned where he fights um, the, the brute. The brute. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's also worth pointing out that that's in the dark, right? It's at night, but you know, again, super well shot. I didn't ever feel like I couldn't tell what was going on. Um, which again is not, not necessarily a given in today's filmmaking landscape when scenes take place in the dark or at night. Um, so I did notice that for sure. Um, but yeah, they're, they're all super, you know, engaging to watch and all each one is, is different from the last one. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about the Tilda Swinton and, and everything that happens at the end. Look, um, always excited to talk about the Q-tip. Yes. Um, just circling back, as I mentioned Tilda Swinton there, you know, there there are a few other people that pop up in this movie. Um, Tilda Swinton playing the other uh, person that breaks into, um, into the killer's house there in the Dominican Republic. You have... Charles Parnell, who we mentioned, uh, playing Hodges, the handler, and uh, Arliss Howard playing Claiborne, that's his name, right? The the uh, the client at the end of the movie. And then, you know, some, some random other performances from not super recognizable people. Um, anything you guys want to say about the, the performances? I mean, I also like Tilda Swinton's, you know, one scene cameo and... She gets some juicy moments. She gets to tell this whole like uh, allegory about the this this bear and this hunter, um, you know, sort of locked in. I'm this, starting to think you're not out here for the hunting. Yeah, uh, pretty, you know, again, darkly funny type stuff. And um, yeah, I, I like what she's doing a lot because, as you say, it's like she's she's playing it like very dramatically like oh this is it for me you know this is my last moment blah 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 blah. but she's putting on an act the whole time right because she she still thinks she's going to come out of it uh because she she has a plan right she has uh, a hidden knife and she tries to to lure the um the killer into a trap basically um but you know he sees through it or well maybe he doesn't see through it maybe he just gets lucky um but he just shoots her and only then discovers what the trap was but um you see perhaps a like-minded individual i think uh in in this um the the tilda swinton character somebody again who kind of just despite all of all of the risks associated with what they're doing kind of just like expects that they're going to be okay at the end of all of it i think that's what she's kind of saying about um the killer during part of this scene um, but then also it seems to be like her mindset, at least the fact that she would even attempt this, this plan, um, with the knife and everything suggests maybe she feels invincible, but, um, anyway, uh, any, anything you guys want to say about Tilda Swinton or any of the other supporting performances? I mean, again, I already feel like I, you know, pointed out that I thought she was great. I really enjoyed her scene. Um, to take a weird tangent on this, let's talk about all the other inclusions in this movie, like Amazon Prime and Starbucks and Postmates and Airbnb. And like, uh, like I had like four or five others. I feel like there was so much product placement. We work. Well, there was, there was so much yeah. product placement in this movie, except for 
Baliquinox, which all of a sudden just like had to be its own. Which thing. I gotta say, the funniest joke in the movie for me is Baliquinox. I mean, that is so funny. The other stuff, I I feel like it's kind of, I mean, it's sort of product placement, but also like, surely they're making fun of WeWork. They're not. It's not product placement for WeWork. Sure, they're yeah. Sure. Fun we can, of, we I mean, can, we can ignore the that. fact that. Like, yeah, the guy at the end who is the, you know, the client, the person at the heart of all this is like a venture capitalist. Like, you know, doesn't that sort of suggest maybe that uh, all of this is is done with tongue in cheek? Sure. I don't know. There, there were there were I mean, again, I just feel like there were weird references to like, you know, products that I just mentioned. Again, there probably were a couple of others that I'm also just forgetting in this exact moment. And I'm just like, why? Like there's the shot of him, you know, like walking up to the Amazon locker and like opening it. And I'm just like, this feels <laughs> unnecessary. Like, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is for me, I do hear what you're saying. And, and I do think it's funny in a manner. But also, this is a Netflix film. And there's no reason for that Netflix would accept endemic advertising from like Amazon Prime. That's what in makes their it film. confusing. Well, no, because <laughs> and, the, and so that makes me believe that all of it is like a critique of modern of like modern life and modern living, how easy it is to do all these things that this guy is doing. And that is like a, not a satire, but a critique of how easy it is to sort of do these, these sort of abhorrent things. Obviously capitalism is kind of, uh, imagine what's going in and out of Amazon lockers where you're picking up your items. Yeah. That's like the vibe from it. Right. It feels like the movie starts and ends on this, like very like, you know, class resentment note, right? Like, don't be the many, be the few. But, like, I feel like you kind of forget about all that in the middle unless you are, like, you know, taking in these product placements as that critique, which, like, I was not. So, like, when that was, you know, and that that that, that line kind of comes back at the end, and I'm just like, was this movie really a... This movie wasn't really about any of that, right? Like, because it starts class, with you... When you say class resentment, what exactly do you mean? Well, just the whole, like you know the this idea of like like building on you know what's in it for you but also like you know the like him kind of morally justifying this as like a you know i'm not putting a dent in population numbers and like you know there are people who will exploit all rules and you want to be the exploiter not the exploitee right like that's that's something that he's like talking through a lot of in the beginning and then it kind of comes back at the end like are you the many or are you the few um and again, it, it just kind of feels like that that gets lost in the middle unless, like, again, I hear you talking about, well, if if including all these products is really making fun of all that, then I guess it isn't. But I didn't view it that way. So to come back to this theme, like, you know, it feels like it's something that's brought up at the beginning and at the end, but nothing in the middle really sways me in one direction or the other on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't think it's really trying to be a movie about something um, I think, you know, there are some some seeds of ideas that are kind of sprinkled throughout, maybe to your point, Jay. But, um, you know, when I say this is a straightforward genre exercise, like, I mean, and I think this is a thriller, you know, an action thriller, a, a serial kit, well, a, a hitman movie, above all. Um, and, you know, I, I think Fincher maybe can't help himself a little bit, but I think like Soderbergh, for example, I think his version of these movies are packed with more ideas about stuff, even ones like that are less successful. Like I never even watched this one, but Scott, I know you watched The Laundromat. I know that was like a, yeah. Um, 
a movie that had a lot on its mind. And, you know, Kimmy has a lot on its mind, I think, about surveillance in the digital age and stuff like that. But, but would you um, describe it really as a lot on its mind? For, I don't, for, I a, genre, for a genre movie. No, I, I, yeah, I know what you're saying. Not a lot, but uh, for that type of movie, yes. And I, I do think it's even a step above like what Fincher is doing here, I guess, was my point. I think I do. I mean, I think it's taking an issue and making it like a plot, a plot seed. Right. Yeah. Whereas like Fincher's not really doing that here. So to that extent, I I would agree with what you're saying. But Kimmy's like not about the surveillance state. It's just using the surveillance state as like a as like a medium to to or like a seed to then grow his sort of just very almost like his very genre driven exercise of a thriller, kind of like a Hitchcockian thriller through yeah. that which works which i mean it works really right. well yeah um but let's let's since we're kind of dancing around it let's talk about the third act of the movie a little bit and you know i think there's a couple scenes maybe we're talking about there's the sure. the tilda swinton interaction which we talked about where she kind of um questions his motivations maybe in in doing exactly what he's doing and you know what are what are you in this for um and so I guess we can kind of start there, Scott. I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that scene and um, sort of where their conversation goes. And, you know, I mentioned the allegory about the bear and everything. Yeah, I mean, the, the allegory there is interesting. I, I almost wondered if I was missing something a little bit in the allegory where and I would actually love for someone to correct me because I feel like it'd be more interesting if this weren't the only very straightforward read of the film. But to me, it just sort of felt like this allegory is, again, like you were saying, questioning his motives, making him question what the point of him coming out into the forest and hunting all of these other assassins. If they're, you're going to end up getting burned by another assassin at some point. Because, you know, it's like it's one predator hunting another predator, right? It's the hunter hunting the bear who's a, a, just a different version of a predator. And, you know... You, you go out and you go through all these exercises, you murder, you hunt all these animals. And one day you find this this animal you can't beat and you keep getting abused by it, essentially. And I felt like I didn't quite pe- like piece the whole puzzle together because it felt like there's more puzzle pieces I did. I could I didn't have available to me in my in my watches of the movie in terms of or me locating where the puzzle pieces were to put it together. But just something wasn't quite fully. I guess like. Uh, what's the right word? It's like. I, it just didn't fully come together. It didn't. I didn't sort of come through at the end of it and think, like, "Oh, what a profound insight for the film." And partly that's because I don't think we get much interiority, frankly, on the Fassbender character, which is ironic since he's narrating half the movie, if not more. Yeah. But there's not like a ton of interiority around his like psyche and uh, in any sort of like less than than superficial way, in my in my view. And maybe because the the character itself is like kind of empty. And that might be the point. That's what you have to. That is what you have to sacrifice in order to be as good as he is at his at his job, right? You know, in quotation marks, there. So overall, I I didn't really care overly much about the allegory. I did find it interesting at the end of the day that and and this guy me goes to the to the point that Jay was making about the class critique is that he draws the line at murdering the billionaire because, as he points out in the film. Uh, the law enforcement response is equivalent to the net worth of the individual. And so you have to draw your line somewhere in terms of where you're going to really crack down on and, and serve retribution on someone. Because at the end of the day, 
it probably is this billionaire's fault. Like it, it ultimately goes back to the billionaire who is what caused the pain that he experienced in the Dominican Republic. You know, it is he is the initiator of the sequence of events that began that. But he, out of fear of his of retribution because of this person's net worth, does not, you know, enact revenge directly onto this person and instead, you know, tries to scare him. Does a, I mean, does a very effective job of scaring him. It's one of the real successes he has in the film, probably probably his greatest success in terms of you think in terms of execution and, and, and whatnot. But yeah, an, an interesting sort of final comment on the the class critique, if there is one in this film that, you know, if you're rich enough, you'll get away with almost anything. Again, it's yeah. it's not heavily on the mind of the film, but it does seem and, like it's there at the end. And, you know, jumping to that last scene, I, I, I also wondered, like, does he does he like relate to this guy in a way because the the venture capitalist guy launches into this whole spiel about oh here's what happened i had no idea you know my issue is not with you like i was just i just wanted this hit to be carried out and he's then, deflecting blame know. he's like just just deflecting deflecting, yeah. deflecting it's 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 clearly he, he is deflecting blame but almost you like believe that this you you kind of believe the guy, right? Like it seems like he's just kind of too dumb to understand exactly. He's in over his head a little bit, and I wonder if after after the killer's experience of like you know things going awry with all of his plans basically over the course of this movie, I wonder if he looks at this guy and is like, you know what? I kind of get what this guy has been through now after you know what I've been through in the movie. It uh, it was just a, it was just a thought that I had. I don't know if that's really what the movie is trying to say there. Uh, but he doesn't he doesn't that grant he doesn't that same that same kindness to the taxi driver, right? Who like ostensibly has the same defense of himself. He's like, I'm just like I was just doing what I was told to do. I didn't know anything was right. happening at all. But that's early on, you know, again, maybe this is oh, like this the, is character growth growth. the character. This is character growth. Well, okay. Again, because the whole <laughs> Tilda Swinton thing, you know, I, again, I, I don't know that it, it comes across <laughs> strongly, but it was just a thought that I had. Like, he's had this experience with Tilda Swinton. Challenges him, or or it seems like he does. Again, we don't really know she does. It seems like we don't really know because we don't have that interiority necessary, like you're saying, Scott. But... Um, you know, and then maybe that causes him to just think about this in a in a bigger picture way. But I think it's probably more of what you're saying. But I did want to, you know, just float that idea out there. Jay, what are your thoughts on sort of this last sequence of scenes? You know, first the Tilda Swinton conversation and then, you know, the the last, you know, kill, which isn't doesn't end up being a kill when he tracks down Claiborne and makes the decision to not to, to spare him, basically. Yeah, my read of the Tilda Swinton thing, and I thought she said a she delivers a line that like confirms this was basically like if he if he really wanted to kill her, that he wouldn't be sitting down at the table right now. Like the way he has chosen to mm -hmm. go about this, like he could have done this in like a dark alley or made it look like an accident. That, that's the line she says something along the lines of like you could have done this in like a bunch of ways, more you know. certainly more impersonal ways. Yes, I think is basically yeah. what she was alluding to but like you're sitting in front of me so you know the i think the insinuation was like you don't just want to kill me like you're here for something else and i think she yeah. also says a line something along you know delivers lines something along those lines as well um so yeah and i mean i it's funny i'm having 
your conversation is making me rethink what I thought about the end there because it hadn't occurred to me, you know, I, or I guess I just detached that line, which was, you know, the wealthier the person, the more work goes into it. So like, does he let him go for self-preservation reasons or has he like finally calmed down and decided like, there's actually nothing personal here. Like sometimes just like shit happens. Um, but now I'm, I think I'm in the camp of like you, Scott Shelton. Like, I don't think I, yeah. there's no character growth here. Like, what is the evidence of that? Like, this must be for like self-preservation. Well, he retires, reasons. right? He, he, at the, the very last scene is. Well, he's got saying, no way to do work anymore. His hand was dead. I mean, he yeah, he doesn't have. Uh, but, but I, I, you know, again, I think the, the point is like he, in the end, he, whatever thrill or motivation he once got out of doing this is no longer there. Perhaps. That's interesting. Was he getting a thrill out of it before? I, it would be my question. Cause it's so ice cold. All that voiceover. He's talking about how, like, I don't, I mean, that's his whole line. Like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. That's how I, that's how well, I win basically. Again. Right. And maybe that's what he realizes uh, over the course of the movie. Right. Is like, he was, he was doing this job and he was putting a lot of effort and care and all of this into it. And what was it really for in the end? Like, was it, what was it bringing him except, you know, a lot of potential risks? Yeah, maybe. I don't know if what's the, what, if that's what the movie's about, but I'm just spitballing here. Um, I did not personally get that read of the movie, but that does not, that, that does not mean that it is wrong. I mean, I, like Jay, I just watched this movie a f couple of hours ago, so I'm kind of just talking through it with you guys as well. But sure. um, yeah, it creates yeah. a fun conversation. The the wheels are spinning, I guess, if you will. Um, Don't spin too quickly. <laughs> anything else you guys want to say before we move into the wrap up for the killer? Reznor and Ross getting it done again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, favorite scene or moment, Jay. I think it's the conversation with Tilda Swinton again. Like, I think they're both just doing, I mean, like Michael Bender is doing what he's been doing in this whole movie, which is being cold and fierce and it's fun. And it's nice to kind of, you know, see Tilda flex her acting chops aside that, whereas it feels like you're not getting a lot of that in the rest of this movie again, because he is so alone and because people are not making it through scenes with him really more than like one or two scenes um, with him for the most part. So, uh, you know, fun time, good time. I like that. Scott. For me, it's the it's the hand, it's the physical fight scene, the super visceral time. I sort of like that that whole chapter. If I had to like pick a favorite chapter, I think that one might be for mine, with the exception of the Bal Equinox joke in the in the last chapter or the second to last chapter, which has to be one of the funniest things I've seen in a movie this year. I mean that Scott, maybe that just doesn't mean anything to you. No, but it doesn't. There's oh, okay. Why well, is it worth explaining? Explain it, Scott. He okay. needs to know. <laughs> explaining a joke is yeah, but yeah, go ahead. So Equinox is like a very famous, extremely high end network of gyms that I I I assume they're like in all the major cities. So like New York, Chicago, L.A., maybe Atlanta, but like those are the three cities that would come to mind. That these would be in Boston. They're in Boston as well. So like really like upper crust like coastal elite gyms uh they cost like you know hundreds of dollars per month to be a member and it's obviously like many i think many membership gyms that are like outside of your your sort of core like your you know um you know purple like planet fitness or 
uh, gold gem, like your sort of more intense membership, like your orange theories or things mm-hmm. that are that are what like there's like a bit of a cult of personality around them, like certain kinds of people are members of of Equinox and certain kinds of people do that kind of stuff. And those kinds of people at Equinox are like people who are extremely rich and like their lifestyle is to like take things a bit too seriously uh, uh, on that. And, and it's a status symbol. So the notion of, of like switching the name and again, to Jay's point, when you have all this other product placement that's taking place in the film, the notion to switch this particular name to call it like Bali Equinox to like really emphasize that it's like kind of like a weird, like sort of cultish lifestyle type thing that is trying to trying to elicit, I think with some of the, you know, the, 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 you know, the Asian motifs and the name and the, and the imagery and, and, and like art inside is just to me it was just so funny to like make fun of like white people trying to like appropriate into into yeah, like the sort of yeah. like zen weird lifestyle like i remember there was a period of time where like i felt like e- I, I knew equinox like when i was at williams as like the gym that people from like new york city talked about that had like eucalyptus towels like that's like the vibe of <laughs> of, of of like that of that culture which uh-huh. is so funny i mean it's so funny to make fun of that in my in my in my estimation so that is like a hilarious joke now that I've explained it and everyone understands that didn't already. Uh, my favorite scene is definitely the one with with the brute. I kept waiting for like, OK, this guy's like a killer, but he's and he's talked about having like a more like more personal kills in his time in the opening sort of narration over that. He's like, you know, this is a hands off job like I've had other jobs that are more personal. And so when you finally get to one that's like that. And to be fair, of different flavors, there's very per- like all the rest of them are quite personal. They're not sort of removed at all. But this one with like sort of the maximalist extent of the hand to hand combat and the physicality of it and the like this sort of multi tiered house like on the, you know, it's not in the Everglades, but it's like the kind of vibe is that it's sort of like that. It's very South Florida. And I think that setting really worked for this and. And he's like sleeping in his car before it, it. I just found the whole sort of setup and the execution of it really masterful. And I think it highlighted all the production components of the movie. So I talked about Eric Messerschmitt's cinematography in that in that sequence. I think that the Reznor and Ross score is a big highlight in that sequence as well. And then again, you sort of he gets away with it, but he's just barely getting across the line in his work. So it, it really sort of highlighted every respect of the movie for me. And I'm going to go with the opening chapter, the the first, you know, 20 minutes or so, the voiceover was... Because McDonald's, right? Yeah, that Isn't was, so that was great. What, that what was it he says? Like, you can get, like, 10 grams of protein for, like, a, one euro or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's some, again, another thing, I like, there's, I feel like there's so many great one-liners. There's a lot of wry humor in this. Yeah. yeah, that I want to go back when I rewatch this movie, hopefully soon. It's pop-on um, material. I, look, I, I told, when, my, when it came out, I told my mom about it, and I'm like, I need to ask her whether she watched it yet or if she enjoyed it. But mm-hmm. I feel like this is a very enjoyable film for someone of the sensibilities of my mother who's like trying to not turn your brain off, but it is kind of turn your brain off for two hours and just sort of like go along for a bit of a ride. And it, the film benefits from that. But part of that is just the fact that we're just cracking, we're just sort of cracking satirical jokes for a couple hours. And, and I I want to say the McDonald's thing for Jay, a man who got 10 grams of protein before we walked into the movie theater yesterday to see, to see the Marvels. Do you agree with Fassbender's estimation of, of, mcdonald's glory to civilization 
no comment. I, I don't know what to say here. <laughs> wow, I, I think Jay was just the, the marketing attacked. worked. Like yesterday, I I don't know the marketing worked yesterday. I was like, I just want a McDonald's cheeseburger and yeah. some nuggets. So it's really a shame in retrospect that you didn't get like the breakfast McGriddle sandwich. Take the bread off and eat it uh, like Fassbender did in this film. Um, but you know, next time I didn't know. Maybe well, next now time. You, now you do. That's what I'm saying. Maybe next yeah. time. Napoleon, you're gonna walk into Napoleon. You're gonna cross your legs. You're gonna take the take the McGriddle out of the bag, remove the or the McMuffin out of the bag, take the take the bread off, and and be an animal. You know, odds. One and two, baby. <laughs> One and two. I'll talk to you offline. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, the first sequence I enjoyed a lot, and uh, yeah, like I said earlier, the punchline of him just blowing the shot after all of this is yeah. uh, is pretty funny. Yeah. Anticipate, don't improvise. It's good advice. Exactly. Yeah. Repeated line throughout the movie. All right. Oh, I have to uh, ask Scott, because you brought this up. What do you think of, of the choice of the Smiths? I feel like much discussion online about the Smiths being his great. go-to. I mean, uh, yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great choice. It's totally on brand. Like, honestly, I feel like that may be one of the more autobiographical elements of the movie. Like I could see David Fincher himself being a Smiths guy for sure. And I loved the, just the, the closing, like the, his last little, um, you know, monologue there and then the cut to black and there was a light that never goes out. One of the Smith's most famous songs there. Do you, the do you picture credit. Fincher going into the editing bay with whoever, like Kirk Baxter, who edited this movie, popping in a, like the wired headphones into his iPod Nano and just click and play on the Smith's? That's what you're, that's what you're picturing? I could, I could see it. Yeah, I could definitely <laughs> see it. Or a Walkman or something like that. Um, yeah, that'd be crazy if he's rolling up with a Walkman. That'd be not, that would be crazy. A disc man. I don't know. Um, all right. Last question. If you guys will even want to get into it, but. Well, I've, I've, had, the, I've had a month with this movie, so I'm, I'm more yeah, prepared sure. than you so guys. So we'll are. go to you first, Scott. Where does this movie come, come out for you in the Fincher rankings? It's solidly in the middle for me. I have it at, in of the 11 films excluding Alien 3 that he's made, I have it between Gone Girl and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which should be number six. Jay? I have it in the exact same spot. <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, what's crazy is I probably maybe have these just like rated slightly lower, not to get into all that, but I'm looking at my list and I'm like, I can see this being at six, like literally right below Dragon Tattoo and above Gone Girl. So we'll see if that sticks. Sure. Yeah. So I have it at seven, actually, um, which is still very good. I prefer to probably think of it pretty in- much in the same spa- space as all of us, except you have mank higher than the rest of us. That's like, I probably what <laughs> yeah. I, well, see, I prefer to think about it as like in tiers because I think sure. like you have the, the bottom tier, which is fight club, Benjamin button and the game. And then you have for me, the middle tier, which is dragon tattoo, panic room, mank, and then the killer and seven. Um, yeah. And right now, not, not for me, but uh, <laughs> right now, right now, I have the killer at seven in between Dragon Tattoo and Panic Room. Or, uh, Panic Room at six and Dragon Tattoo at eight. Oh, this is this is going to be indecipherable in audio form. Yeah. <laughs> audio form on Listen Back. <laughs> and then, of course, the top tier is Zodiac Social Network seven and Gone Girl. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, I'm you sure you guys pronounced Panic Room, but easily. okay. What's, what's, said, how's you, it pronounced? You, you pronounced it Gone Girl. It's pronounced Panic uh, Room. Uh, I saw what Jay was doing and I appreciated it. <laughs> yeah. All right. I lied. I have one more question for you guys because uh, I didn't ask it already. Uh, what do you give this movie out of 10, Jay? It's a 7.1 for me. I enjoyed Scott. it. Like, you know, 
I had my complaints, but overall, I enjoyed it. This discussion was also fun. Sure. 8.0. 8.4 for me. A lot of fun. You know, yeah. it's a it's a middle-tier David Fincher movie, as we've just said, which means... I just talked about it. People saying, it's not top-tier Fincher. You're going <laughs> to come in here at the end of the movie, and your key takeaway is going to be like, it's middle-tier. My, my, I'm more impressed by the fact that an 8.4 is seventh on his list. That means that yeah. the other six are higher. Like They are. That's... Right. Yeah, that, that's Look, something. some he's, of us have have reasonable scales uh, today, but this has <laughs> that, nothing to do um, with scale. That's like, yeah, Scott, has nothing to do with scale. <laughs> Scott, to go back, my my point though is is I say that, but I'm not using that as like a critique of the I know, movie. I know, like, I know. I'm I'm I more just wanted to go back around and pull my bit back, yes. back up again. I mean, so. that's that's fair. But as I'm anyway, to do. that Guys, makes all I'm gonna it, say, Jay, is that you're talking about an eight point four being number seven or whatever on Scott's list. Uh, I'm gonna have to go write some scores down. I'm not sure what number ten on Miyazaki's ranking is gonna be for me, but it's, it's gonna be pretty high. Yeah. yeah no, I, I was thinking about that too. But yeah, it's it, even being a middle tier David Fincher film. It's a it's a upper tier movie for most directors. So there you go. Sure. Um, Absolutely. Oh, all right, that'll do it for our review of The Killer. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you here on a regular episode of the podcast. Of course, go and check out the Countdown series right now. Miyazaki, we're uh, in in the home stretch, rolling out the last few just, episodes. Spirited away, just yeah, released. Exactly. Yep. Um, so we've got a few more to go, and then obviously we'll be concluding that with the boy and the heron, right here on Some Like It, Scott. And Jay will be back joining us for that. Um, but yeah, once again, thanks Jay for being here. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the big news in the movie world over the past week, which of course is that the SAG AFTRA. Actor strike has finally come to an end. So stay tuned for that conversation. We'll be right back. this episode of some like it scott scott i teased it before the break but we uh, of course have to discuss the big news in the world of movies over the last week which is that after 118 days one of the longest labor uh, outages in, in in hollywood history the sag after strike has finally ended they've come to an agreement um with the major studios and um the actors can begin working again they can begin uh, promoting movies again. Uh, so that obviously affects a lot of movies that are coming out very soon uh, because they can they can get the promo that they want from their cast. Um, and it hopefully means that we will not have many more films that get delayed. Although, even with this news coming out, there were a couple more delay announcements. Deadpool 3 was pushed back um, as well as... I mean, notably, all those other movies that were in the summer for Disney have all been delayed to 2025, and Deadpool is the only one left standing, which is probably a little scary for movie theaters next year. Although, you could argue that Disney IP movies are not really uh, making a lot of money for theaters right now, but that's a separate thing. That is true, but Scott, you know, what are your thoughts? Obviously, this is good news that it has finally ended. It seems yeah. like the actors got a good deal out of all this after after all was said and done. Um, and uh, obviously, the best news is just that 
we're going to be back to normal more or less with uh with yeah, the good news is that in. is that timothy chalamet could stop pretending that he was promoting his new fashion line on snl last night and could just instead <laughs> promote wonka which is the real reason why yeah. he was hosting snl look i think it's it's obviously huge that this is over you mentioned the actor strike being 118 days one of the longest strikes of talent in at least in hollywood history i'm sure that there's been longer strikes in other in other you know labor unions etc before i mean the writer strike which we talked about wrapping up on the podcast a little like a month ago a little less than a month ago that was 148 days so it's been a very tough six months uh in hollywood we've not felt frankly as much of the pain of those strikes of course as the people who are suffering the actors and writers who are on strike and then of course like the other people in the industry who couldn't work because of those strikes even though they themselves we're not striking. So you think about the Teamsters and Yahtzee, which is the sort of production workers in the business, like they were all suffering as well. And the fact that that has come to a close and the industry can restart is huge, is really important. Whether they got a, a good deal, I think that the deal terms are still to be trickled out into the press. And I, I haven't read yet any articles talking about the fullest terms. I know that they got a seven. They did get a pretty um, sizable, a larger uh, larger than the pattern bargaining, which would be larger than the directors and the writers got in terms of an inflationary pay bump. So they are receiving their minimums went up more than the writers and the directors did. Whether that was as much as they wanted, I think probably not because they're at least their starting position was almost twice as much as what they got in the end. But again, you always start from a place where you understand you're not going to end up so that you then bargain to somewhere in the middle and we can maybe talk about terms if they're interesting or, or important to look at as more of them are released over the next couple of weeks. But suffice to say that the fact that the strike is over is certainly the most important thing. And, you know, like I said before, we, as the movie going audience with a few exceptions, most notably, of course, uh, my beloved Dune part two did not really feel the pain of the writers and actors strike, there was still been a steady flow of content. Again, there's been movies here and there that have been pushed out of this year into, into next year. And that certainly has been unfortunate for, for the movie going audience, the viewing, the viewers. But honestly, I think we're going to feel the pain more next year just because of the level of production shutdown and where that sits in the, you know, the, the, the supply chain, so to speak of movies into theaters. And the fact that, all of these sort of first half of next year movies, unless they were already finished shooting, which many of them were not, it's going to be very difficult to push those out and remain on the timeline. I mean, we already saw and talked about how Disney had delayed films like Snow White and one of the Pixar movies, although arguably that might not have been because of the strike. And now that they've delayed all these other IP driven movies, you know, Warner Brothers, I think, is potentially in a similar position with something like the new Godzilla movie. And Mortal Kombat as well. I think both of those movies were, were scheduled to come out in the first half of, of next year. And, you know, your mileage may vary about whether you're interested in those movies or not. But those are big budget films that are meant to be in theaters and should, in theory, be grossing money for theaters. And that's one element that I think is super concerning. Movie theaters next year may not have a very good supply of like. There's no Barbenheimer next year, I guess, is what I'm trying to basically yeah. what I'm trying to say. And. Maybe we were already heading that direction because you look at the the Marvels this weekend only grossing forty seven million 
domestically for its opening weekend, which is a disaster. And maybe it was because Brie Larson and Samuel L. Jackson aren't there promoting the movie, but I think there might be other reasons. And disenchantment with that with the MCU right now is certainly one of them. And that sort of recalibration for the movie theaters, the, the movie theaters specifically, along with the fact that the supply of big budget films is going to be lower next year, I think is is something that's a bit scary. And, and not to turn this sort of conversation about the end of this very significant labor strike in Hollywood into a, oh no, what about theaters kind of conversation. But as someone who watches more movies in theaters than I than I do at home and not in theaters. That is something that it is on my mind and I do think about. And I don't think this means that theaters are going to imminently shut down, but I think it creates a more complicated environment for the wide distribution of movies. If, for example, AMC, which has long been rumored to be on the cusp of going bankrupt, is pushed into bankruptcy next year because of the sheer lack of interest in going to the movies. And that's not to say that will happen, but when you see the lineup of films that's still yet to come next year, that's scary because bankruptcy doesn't mean AMCs are going to go away, but it means that a lot of locations are going to go away. The convenience and the ability to go see movies uh, with an A-list subscription might be contracting next year if you're not in the major cities or around a theater with a high uh, volume of traffic that is profitable for these studio or for these theater chains. So uh, I think it's an interesting potential downstream effect of the strikes that we knew would be the case all along, but I think it just sort of paints a very dire picture when, as we've already seen start to happen, streaming services become, you know, more and more likely to be getting movies because theatrical distribution is harder and harder. And these are like the longest term effects that we're talking about here, but it's great. The strike is over. It's awesome that people are getting back to work. And now we have to think about what the consequence, the longer term consequences of these strikes have been on the industry and specifically the you know theatrical distribution yeah i mean there there is a lot of stuff to still be concerned about as you as you point out there scott and you know from a a movie fan perspective first of all i think you know yes of course we're happy that the strike has ended but there are oh, um, other things to to be concerned about as you have brought up and um, yeah, I mean, look, the Marvels making 47, like, let's be honest, do those movies even need promo at this point? Like, it's an MCU movie. Like, do they need the actors, you know, to go on Jimmy Fallon or whatever? And say, well, not, hey, no, not, not Jimmy Marvels. Fallon on social media. I think that it is helpful. Well, yeah. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know. As you point out, I think there are other factors involved. Sure. It's not, it's not the only factor. It's not, yeah. it's not the only factor. That's for sure. Yeah. I, mean, I think the other, the other thing to talk about, too, is and this is more related to the industry. So maybe this is a more interesting thing to talk about is that I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about is like a real long term consequence of the strike is that is that people are going to finally be paid more. And, I, and that is important to make acting and writing and directing and all these different a aspects of the industry, you know, jobs that you can live off of. The fact that you don't need to string together two or three jobs to make a living as you'd be average working actor or average screenwriter in Hollywood. I think that's critically important for the industry, but it's an interesting twist in that, like that, what that probably means is that the industry will be less accessible for more people who have been scraping by, right? 
because fewer shows are going to be made, especially especially TV shows. Fewer TV shows are going to be made, and the ability to string together a career as you know a relatively obscure actor who manages to get in a you know eighth or ninth build role on you know five TV shows a year or a guest you know a couple guest appearances or something like that. Like the like that the volume of work there is going to decline. And that was probably already happening, but that's all that's just going to be accelerated by the advancements made in these strikes in the contract negotiations. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think it's just a reality that we're going to have to live with. I think it's important that acting and writing be careers for the average that the average person working in the industry can live off of. I think that's really important. But I do think it's an interesting thing that it's going to be more difficult to break through and have that career that that previously maybe could have been uh, generated through multiple jobs and through getting a few guest appearances. You're going to get paid more when you work, but fewer people are going to be getting paid. And that's an interesting dynamic that that's that's not facts, but that's just what I suspect. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting point to bring up. I, you know, not even something that I thought about, but um something something to monitor going forward i mean the bu- the budgets this. aren't getting bigger but the things are getting more expensive which means the volume is going down which means fewer actors yes. are working and writers are working and, and again this that's not necessarily a bad thing i feel like this is all stuff that i learned in, in ap economics or something like you know some oh, sure. some charts yeah. and graphs and something goes up and something else goes down you know that's about all i remember but um yeah sure. that was that we'll was go a class that, that I took and uh, <laughs> and I did not. <laughs> yeah, and and I've never used it again once until I, I took it. So and yeah, I mean, you you probably deal with these issues a lot more in your uh, your uh, daily yes. job as well. Suffi- suffice to say, the answer to that question. I think that's yes. I think that's probably very fair to say. But, um, <laughs> yes, but yeah, and Scott, you know, I think the saddest part of all this, of course, is that like a couple of weeks ago, people were pointing out that it was the week that Dune part two was supposed to come out uh, in theaters. And I might've been one of those people. <laughs> I think, I think you probably were, but, um, but yeah, you know, Dune, we will hopefully be getting next year, um, barring any other major catastrophes. Um, uh, my heart won't be, be able to take it if we don't get it next year. My heart will not go on if, if that happens. Uh, My heart will not go on for with with Warner Brothers Discovery if they don't release that movie next year. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about going through a firestorm. That would be them right now. But um, sure. Yeah, their stock dropped twenty percent last week after earnings, so they're in bad shape. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's all another story uh, about David Zaslav being David Zaslav. But um, pretty cool guy. Yeah. No. No argument there. I think that's pretty much the agreed upon. Uh, Agreed upon opinion of him at this point. Pretty cool guy, David Zaslav. Sure. Um, I, I'd like to make as much money as he makes. I'll say that much. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't yeah. we all? Um, all right, Scott. Well, on that very cheery note, uh, sure. I think we can conclude this episode of the podcast. Uh, I honestly Carol's don't even mean that as a negative. I'm just like, you know. Yeah. That guy's been very successful. Yeah. Whether you like him or not is another question. But Right. Uh, well, it, look, I like, I like how I successful he's been. I can't help but think of all the other very morally questionable people that are making as much money as him, if not more. Sure. Um, but welcome to vulture whole, capitalism. Whole nother matter. David Tepper, if you're listening to this, sell the Carolina Panthers. Um, <laughs> Scott, where can our listeners find you on social media? <laughs> At Shelton 2013. 
And I am at uh, Scarvy Dent. Almost forgot my handle there. At Scarvy Dent on all platforms. It's not like it's been the same handle for years and years and years now. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash pods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, we hope you will rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll be back in a couple of weeks for our next episode on which we'll be reviewing the Ridley Scott epic historical biopic Napoleon. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down here.